Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast. This is episode 62. And today we have the pleasure of uh, interviewing Dr. Rob Sivis, who is a bariatric surgeon. So that was very interesting that he's a bariatric surgeon and we didn't get to talk about bariatric surgery at all. (laughs) It was really interesting because uh, obviously as the listeners know that I've actually had weight loss surgery and I was very keen to get his perspective and certainly the conversation a wide-ranging conversation but mostly it was the big picture big picture around food policy food politics um, certainly you know the food guidelines and really it was certainly situated in a very public health um, way and really He's a very intelligent man, Jackie, who just read me like a book. You know, I was feeling quite vulnerable and exposed. He did read you very much, very quickly. He picked up on your um, authoritarian, is that the right word, background? Well, yeah, and, and that was already, as the listeners were here, that he sort of is able to read. And I suppose that's a real... A, a real skill for, for doctors to be able to be perceptive and intuitive in terms of reading their patients and putting, you know, into into context and just not treating the patient as a symptoms, as a list of symptoms that he understands the patients in terms of saying that they're either very permissive or they have uh, this authoritarianness about it. And call me a control freak if you want. But anyway, so, um, <laughs> okay. I just like a little bit of order and structure as I sort of show Jackie my little colour-coded timetable diary. But, you know, that works for me and keeps my brain in in order, keeps all the balls in in the air. But I think it's important for him as well because he, he probably approaches those two types of people very differently. Yes. And I think that that gets to their food behaviours and their, the way that they respond to his advice. You know, and that's, that's the way that they do that. No. And he, you know, he said his goal is to make those people like you less structured and people like me probably that are, doesn't have very much structure, more structured. So hopefully to find a, a better balance. So, Jackie, that's why we're so yin and yang. That's why we work together so well, you know, that I keep you on track. You do. <laughs> I'm beating the drum, I know. You do. So, um, yeah. Anyway, Jackie, let's 
Can you tell us a bit more about Rob? Robert Sivers, MD, PhD, is a clinically practicing doctor and surgeon in Florida and Idaho. His mission is about educating the public about a carbohydrate addiction approach to treating obesity, diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Understanding the importance of replacing carbs in your diet with real food while simultaneously replacing carbs as a toxic, harmful response to emotional tension with a more effective, diverse, healthy set of emotional management tools for lifelong sustainability of mental and physical health, happiness and well-being. Converting people from toxic sugar burners to healthy fat in brackets keto burners while addressing the cause of addiction to carbs from an emotional management perspective sometimes using obesity surgery and devices as tools along the way and helping people who have had bariatric surgery stay healthy and not relapse let's hear from rob welcome dr rob to the fabulously keto podcast it's fabulous to have you with us today Great. Thank you very much for having me here. I'm very excited to do this. <laughs> and we always start one of our first, well, our first question is always, where in the world are you? I'm currently in South Florida in the United States. Uh, early, early morning for me, but very uh, early. great to be here. Thank you. And But you're not American, you're South African. Well, I am I? American now, but I'm my birth is from South Africa. I grew up there, I trained there, and then I moved to the US after I became a medical doctor. I am a medical doctor and I did my surgical training and my PhD in Canada and the US. Excellent. So start by telling us how you found low carb because you were a, a an overweight doctor when you first started, weren't you? Right. There were, yeah, there were two perspectives. The one is as a physician, um, in fact, during my PhD, uh, I worked with sugar, I worked with a liver. In fact, I worked with a person that discovered or, or wrote up the uh, glycemic index, David Jenkins, um, who wrote up the uh, glycemic index that is the foundation for the mismanagement of diabetes since 1981. Um, and I say that specifically. Um, and then also when I came, moved to the US, I gained a ton of weight. I gained well over 100 pounds and I struggled with that and eventually found that the problem wasn't so much a calorie problem as it was a dysfunctional relationship with a drug called sugar. Uh, and I use those words very specifically. And when I treated sugar like a drug and myself as a drug addict, and I was able to use addiction methodology rather than caloric reduction or weight loss methodology, diet and exercise, it came off and it stayed off for 22 years. Had a couple of relapses in that time, but like everybody does when they're addicts. Um, but for the most part, I've maintained my weight loss, but more importantly, my health. Yeah. So we always say, people come for the weight loss and they stay for the health exactly right exactly right so so now you're helping people with obesity um and particularly carb addiction so can you just touch a little bit on the carb addiction side yeah so i think the you know there are two aspects to carbohydrate addiction is that there's a physiologic and a psychological component and you can look at them separately or uh, together but it, it starts with a psychology so uh, this is not about, and, and this is such a critical point for me, is that it's really not about carbohydrates. It's not about alcohol. It's about a person's relationship with the substance. And we so often demonize carbohydrates as being terrible or bad. They only become terrible or bad 
if you overuse them for a purpose for which they were not designed to be used. And um, so it's about the relationship. And we've got to look at why people overdo alcohol, carbohydrates, nicotine, whatever it may be. And it's the absence or the, the deficit of certain uh, elements to a person's life that leads them to overconsume something that is now ubiquitously available in all of our lives. And that deficit is an effective, diverse emotion management system. All human beings every day need to manage anxiety, stress, depression, anger, fear, frustration, sadness, boredom, and pleasure. I call that emotional tension. And we all have unique strategies to do that. There are instant gratification strategies where you get the sudden spike of a substance that activates the endorphin system that gives us an upfront reward of tranquility. And then there are what I call effort-based systems where you have to put effort in upfront for the reward on the back end. Going for a walk is equally relaxing, but not as a spike. More gradually over time, as you walk, the world dissolves around you and there's a tranquility that happens. Um, and there's no remorse or regret for going for a walk. But if you smoke a joint, smoke a cigarette, or eat a tub of ice cream, there's remorse and regret, palpable or non-palpable, on the back end of that. So we start to use substances that activate the endorphin system in a, in a primary way, uh, in a chronic excessive manner, to manage emotional tension. And whether that's cigarettes, nicotine, or sugar and starch, um, we start to create a relationship with that where we're surrounded with them. Smokers always got their cigarettes close at hand. And we're continuously, whenever we need a little bit of uh, a mind-cleansing moment, we're thinking of our drug of choice. Smokers always looking to go outside for a cigarette. And the obese person is always looking for that little snack, that little bite, that little sip, that little drink. And we surround ourselves with access. And it's little bits at a time. Nobody smokes 20 cigarettes at one time but it's what we do throughout the day. That Coke that you sip on two or three times a day, those M&Ms that you eat, that mashed potato, whatever it may be, we're looking for that source, primarily not for its nutritional value, but for its emotional value. And when you're eating emotionally, you're eating beyond the physiologic capacity of your body to deal with that sugar. And that is all mediated through something called insulin, a hormone that controls and regulates, in part, energy balance. And um, when you disrupt insulin, it's called insulin resistance, and that leads to a number of harmful things. And the harm is based on the genetics. So some people become obese, some people become diabetic, some people develop hypertension or metabolic syndrome, some people get Hashimoto's disease. There are a variety of different areas in which insulin resistance and hyper, uh, um, uh, hyperglycemia affects the human body in the GI tract, in the bloodstream, between the cells and in the cells. And each person tolerates sugar in certain areas better than others. And who you become, the diseases you develop, are based on the genetics of how you process excess sugar. But nobody is immune to excess sugar. So mm. that's the principle. And we, we approach this from a psychologic perspective, not a caloric perspective, because the problem is not obesity or diabetes. The problem is why you have that chronic excessive relationship with sugar. We have to deal with the relationship. And that's what, what addiction management is. Uh, it isn't about the scale. It's about the relationship and developing a more robust, diverse, effort-based emotion management system 
to replace the use of an instant gratification system. Yeah. So for you, I mean, obviously this this new sort of this new knowledge, or you know, and the way that you've been able to put this succinctly has obviously been a twenty plus year journey. What sort of were the factors that inputted for you in your relationship with food? Was it obviously your your medical training, which I, I, by all accounts is very stressful? On top of that, you know, your relocation, your expat, your PhD. Did, was that all some of the, yeah, the contributing of factors things, right, to all, your relationship? Sorry, uh, all of those things factored in. You know, in the laboratory, I saw what sugar did to blood vessels. So I got a very rapid understanding of diabetes because diabetes is is where excess sugar in the bloodstream damages blood vessels. That, that is simplistically what diabetes is. Um, and it's caused by either the consumption of, insul- of, of too much sugar or the lack of insulin, type 1, type 2. Um, so every aspect that you just outlined factored into that understanding. Um, but the other thing also that I think more and more because of the pressure on physicians to see more and more patients um, as a GP, as a family doctor, where you have to see 40, 50 patients in a day and you're under super pressure to see patients, an easier way to manage that relationship is to walk into a room and to look at tests and talk to patients about what they should do for their health without ever listening to the patients. Unfortunately, it takes a long time to listen to patients' stories. And as a specialist, I was able to spend longer time with fewer patients and listen to their stories and listen to the stories they told about why they thought they had certain diseases. And if you do that, there is a disease pattern recognition or there's a pattern recognition that you can then pick up on. If you've only got five or 10 minutes with a patient, you really are not able to hear stories. And more and more, as I listened to the patterns, they had nothing to do with calories. They had to do with emotional management, stress resolution, dysfunctional uh, patterns in that regard. And it was always the same. So once you get used to pattern recognition, you understand what the pressures are, what the issues are, and what the relationships look like. And it became so obvious that this was a substance abuse problem, not an energy problem. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of um, financial pressure for us to consume the products that give us this substance abuse problem. Sure. The incentive is, well, it's, it's both ways, actually, Jackie, is that the incentive is there for rap- this huge incentive for rapid emotional resolution so that we can be supposedly more productive in our jobs. So our, our self-care time for most working people, but for everybody, has been reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced. Uh, you know, they're now putting kids in kindergarten or junior kindergarten at two and three years of age and forcing them to learn before they've learned to play. And if you don't learn to play, you don't learn to manage emotional tension before you put under huge amounts of stress. So it starts at a very, very early age uh, with a pressure to succeed, the pressure to be busy, the, profession, pro- the, the, the pressure to be successful. And we've, we no longer put ourselves under the pressure to love art, to love play. Sport has become a professional thing about performance, not about enjoyment. Um, So uh, the challenge is that we have diminished self-care and maximized productivity, almost like we're machines. And then it's much easier to look at an instant gratification system 
that gives us instant relief so we can work harder. It takes time to go for a walk. It takes time to read a book. It takes time to do those things. Um, and so, yes, there's, there's a pressure on emotion management systems, but then they also provide in ubiquitous availability. No matter where you live, most people live within 50 yards or 50 feet of a tsunami of food. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to remove that word. I know Louise said use the word food as well. That's an error. Um, it's actually drugs. Because, mm -hmm. um, mm. you know, living within reach of steak and broccoli is fine. That's food. But for the most part, when I go into a hardware store and the first thing I see is a rack of Coke and chocolates at the, at the entrance to the hardware store, that is what our society has become. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., you go into Home Depot and there's racks of Coke or Pepsi or whatever it may be, depending on who's sponsoring them, at the front door. Why is that there? I'm here to buy a new sink for my bathroom. Um, and, and that's the challenge. It is ubiquitously available. And if you watch TV, uh, you know, nobody sells steak and broccoli on TV. It's always, it's always some form of carbohydrate. It's interesting. Some, something that comes in a packet. Right, something that yes. was produced by humans. Um, the, the manufacturing industry has become huge. And it's either something that, that is, is designed to make you fat or to make you skinny. But they made you fat first. So Coke will sell you Coke, and then they'll sell you a Diet Coke. It's, it's interesting you said about Home Depot because obviously for the Australians that listen, it's obviously Bunnings. And so when you the first thing you do when you walk into Bunnings as our big box um, hardware store is obviously you've got to walk past the sausage sizzle. So, um, yeah, and that's obviously the, the slice of white bread with the, you know, the link um, you know, for Americans, you know, the link, the sausage yeah. and um, onions. Onions go on the top, not on the bottom. That's that's a whole national debate with <laughs> the tomato sauce, which is sugar. Yes. Um, sold with the can, but they're mainly for fundraisers. But um, yeah, it's it's true. But where you're walking in those in the supermarket, where there's reams and reams of sugar in the checkout in that sort of corral, um, yeah, it, it is a. I mean, just speaking of that, I see Heinz here in the Heinz, which produces our, our tomato sauce or our ketchup in the US. They're not advertising a no added sugar ketchup or tomato sauce. So you know that historically they've always added sugar to their ketchup. Mm. But by definition, ketchup or tomato sauce is very rich in sugar, even before they added extra. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's like Philip Morris telling us that these cigarettes do not contain added nicotine. They're still nicotine-based cigarettes. That's why. So, the, but the marketing, as you said, we're bombarded with this messaging that says, "Oh, this, this tomato sauce is now safe." No, it's not. And the cigarettes have sugar in as well. Correct. So that so that keeps the addiction going. Yeah, but it's you know, I, and that's the the challenge. Therefore, and I think uh, uh, this is an important concept to understand is that we cannot expect anybody to do this for us. Yeah. The pressures are too great um, against our society, at least in my lifetime, changing. Um, and the, the analogy I use all the time is, you know, in the 1950s, smoking was okay because we didn't understand its harm. Now, in 2021, everybody understands it's a problem, and yet there's very little incentive not to sell cigarettes. They curb them, but they still tax them. And the switch has now been very subtly from cigarettes to vaping. You're still pitching nicotine and you're still making awesome profits on 
drugs. In fact, more profit on vaping than you'd ever do on cigarettes because you cut out the farmer. So I don't think as a society, the incentive is there in a consumeristic world to help us. And I think the other challenge is that we in healthcare have become really, really good at treating communicable disease. The greater the shift in the last 50 to 70 years in disease is toward chronic um, non-communicable diseases. In other words, we've shifted not to things that happen to us, but to things that we do to ourselves. And, yeah, I, um, I, I heard you say once that in, I wrote this down, in this century, the majority of causes of death and the majority of causes of illness are going to be self-induced. Correct. So uh, the commonest cause of death is human behavior. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us as individuals to decide how we handle our own body. So there's also another, along those lines, this is a shift that I preach. And more and more, because people are trying to make money in the healthcare space, they're selling health perfection. They're selling things that are designed to make us super healthy, anti-aging medication. If If I take this, I'm going to live super healthy. You know, whether you are biological or religious, God and nature has done a really, really good job with human genetics. So most of us, are primed to live for a very, very long time when we, are, when we are embryos. So let's assume that the average human being genetically is designed to live to 100. Then there's nothing that we can really do that's going to make us live beyond that time. But there are pl- pretty much everything we do then subtracts from that 100. So if you smoke, you're subtracting from that 100. If you um, text while you're driving, you subtract from that 100. If you eat a bunch of carbohydrates and you develop diabetes, you're subtracting from that 100, whether that's through cancer or heart attack or stroke. So really, the incentive for us is not to live super long. The incentive for each human being should be to do their level best to remove the things that shorten our lives or make us less healthy. And um, so often we're taking a bunch of super powerful supplements to make us super healthy while we're still shooting ourselves in the foot every day with the smoke that we're, the smoke that we're breathing in, the um, carbohydrates that we're eating, the alcohol that we're consuming. And I think the, the incentive here is to pick and choose what you're going to die from. And we have that ability in the modern era. Some people are going to die of alcohol disease. Some people are going to die of carbohydrate disease. But those are the common diseases we're going to die from. And so my job as a physician is to recognize you are going to die. We all are. But I can help people who choose not to die from carbohydrate toxicity to remove carbohydrates from their life. And that really is the healthcare space that I work in. And it's, it's a change in thinking. It's not about living forever. It's about not living too little. Yeah. And, but also living well. You know, the, as you said, if you're going to be subtracting, you know, because of things that are obviously extraneous or external beyond your control, I mean, there are some things that, that are beyond your control that are modifiable, you know, in terms of those determinants and that sort of thing. Right. So using the public health, public health sort of thing. But there's things about living well, but that, as you said, is part of what you're doing. You're you're empowering, educating, um, working in that co-design with your with your patients. As you said, 
across the world, so um, not just in, in Florida, but it's really about making good choices, and one of which is obviously understanding, navigating, negotiating that relationship with food from a psychological and understanding the physiological impacts on that. Absolutely. And the two things that I believe all human beings are chasing um, are, are things that have no outcome metrics, and that's health and happiness. There is no outcome metric to health or happiness. However, if we advance those two, and we look pretty much just at the carbohydrate or the eating space, um, if it is an addiction, which I'm pretty certain it is, that detracts from happiness because anytime you consume a drug at a conscious or a subconscious level, there's remorse. And anytime you have the ability to do something that gives you unconditional pleasure and you choose not to do it, there's regret. And remorse and regret are very toxic to self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-respect. And ultimately, happiness comes through those three, three words, sense of self. From the health perspective, mediated through insulin resistance, the things that we do to our body with sugar and starch and with snacking and overeating detract from our best health in the largest possible uh, realm because carbohydrate toxicity affects every cell in the human body and uh, more so than any other drug that we can consume. So as we chase health and happiness, um, the way to do that is number one, to remove sugar and starch from your life as best you can. And that, that is dependent. Not everybody has to remove them completely. Sometimes we're too zealous about that. There are plenty of athletes that have a very healthy relationship with sugar and starch. There are people in your part of the world in, in the Far East or where there are a number of peasant communities that subsist very healthily on carbohydrates. There's no harm done there on that from that subsistence part. It's the chronic excessive use that's the problem. So that's the first part. The second part is the diversity of things that we do for emotional fulfillment. And the longer and the harder we work, the more sedentary we are, the smaller and smaller that world becomes. Whether it is something creative, something artistic, something physically active, even spiritual or human connection, we know under COVID how with lockdowns everywhere in the world, our empathetic human connection has been radically affected. And we don't realize that that, that is one of the pillars of effective emotion management is human connection. And um, if we lose that, we lose a huge percentage of what gives us emotional buoyancy. And then we turn to fill that void with what's available everywhere, which is sugar and starch, manufactured goods. And Netflix. <laughs> Sorry. Netflix, yeah, yeah. Um, Netflix, Netflix uh, uh, with popcorn and chocolates. Yeah, but that's right. So, it, you know, that comes with the, um, you know, well, certainly the remorse and the regret is like, oh, I just wasted another hour. Like, you know, and Netflix is still sort of, you know, going on. Well, you know, you know awake there, Louise? A little saying that I have is I've never met a fat person who didn't have time to watch another Netflix movie, but I've met plenty of fat people who couldn't find five minutes to go for a walk. Now, I've got to tell you, it's it's 
I think that I'm an intelligent person. And um, in lockdown, I thought, great, there's going to be all this time. And somehow, magically, I'm still in my sweats <laughs> from this morning because I purposely, and that's what I've been trying to do, is purposely and intentfully, if I put my sweats on, so my um, my yoga gear, I want to have 25 minutes to do a um, wonderful app. Big shout out to Down Dog. Absolutely love Down Dog for the, um, the app. 20 minutes of um, just movement, gentle flexibility and that sort of stuff. The best part of those 20 minutes is the 18 minutes of Savasana, which is the, the dead the corpse pose. Just kidding. Um, three minutes. But do you think I could carve out 20 minutes or 25 or 30 minutes in my lockdown day? And it's, it's, I don't understand. And that's where I was circling back to your point was about this cognitive dissonance. And it's, you know, you were sort of saying about the, the fact that, you know, I have these modifiable things where, like smoking, I know that it's bad for me, but I'm addicted. I know that that chocolate or, you know, carbohydrate is bad for me but there is this addiction. How did you sort of get to understand that, well, certainly the neurophysiology aspects of, because you were working in liver, you know, liver metabolism um, research, that brain connection to, you know, that was driving you to to eat or or to consume over and have that dysfunctional relationship with food? In fact, this is such a salient point. There's a group of us that are uh, all working the space that are discussing this in great detail now. And I think the problem is we are trapped into physiology. Of course, when you overeat carbohydrates, it's actually fairly simple to understand what that does in your liver and everywhere else. But that is the consequence. The question is, mm-hmm. what is the incentive, mm-hmm. as you're asking, to yeah. eat this stuff? And uh, when you're not sick, what is that incentive? And um, that is where we have to look at sugar and starch not as an energy molecule. Uh, if you think about fat and protein, they have energy value, but they also have a variety of other um, roles in the human body. For example, protein becomes so many of the neurotransmitters, uh, but they start out as amino acids, but they become messengers. They become hormones. They become messengers. Fat is not just an energy thing that sits on our hips and our bellies. Every cell has a fat membrane. Inside of every cell, there's a membrane, a wall that is contracted with fat. A lot of people don't even understand that. And sugar is exactly the same. We look at sugar primarily in its energy role, and we're locked into that, which is the caloric role. But sugar has a variety of other effects in the human body that are not energy related. And some of those are brain triggers. And they may be directly mediated by sugar itself, or the co-conspirator is a hormone called insulin. Insulin has a number of of functions beyond um, energy control. And, um, you know, that's the beauty about the human body is that it'll use one molecule in a diversity of roles in different settings. And I think when we look at sugar beyond its energy capacity, um, because that's the toxicity that we see, the obesity or the diabetes, but Um, what we're looking at is the trigger effect in the human brain. And there it has a role similar to nicotine or alcohol or opioids, um, triggering a a communal pathway of pleasure, of instant happiness, of tranquility and emotional relaxation, which is the neurohormonal effect that we see. And that is where sugar is more of a 
as I said, a neurotransmitter than an energy molecule. And we're just starting to scratch the surface of how it works. There's a woman by the name of Nicole Acevina who works in New York. Um, she's a neuropsychologist, and she's done a number of studies with rats and then with humans looking at behavioral modification and reward modification. And whether it's nicotine, cocaine, or sugar, the reward incentive is exactly the same. And the way those animals become conditioned to seek out their drug of choice in exactly the same pattern. So it really isn't about the physiology of sugar in the liver, because that cannot be that communal pathway. There is no physiology of cocaine in the liver that is similar to sugar, um, nor nicotine, you know, all those substances. And water just doesn't do it for you. I'm sipping on uh, something over here that does, has no neurochemical benefit to me, but it is the distraction of that little mind-cleansing moment of having that mm -hmm. that gives me the ability to uh, move forward. The other thing that I just wanted to mention is that, and this is, I think, where a lot of people get trapped. We look at our patients, we look at the people we treat and speak to as if they were us, and other people are not us. And all too often, doctors get trapped or, or therapists get trapped in saying, this is how I do it, therefore, this is how you should do it. Um, but we don't understand, we don't put ourselves in the shoes of that person. How do they function? What are they capable of? And that empathetic aspect of healthcare is missing because ultimately, healthcare is shifted toward, at least in this space, helping people to help themselves. And there is no pill, there is no surgery, there's nothing that I can give you that will help you to help yourself other than information. And so I have to meet you where you are. And uh, one of the things that I categorize quite uh, uh, particularly when it comes to substance abuse is we've got two disparate um, populations, two differently wired groups of people that are both vulnerable to addictive behavior. Um, and I'm going to get a little personal if you don't mind. It's not, uh, it's just an insight. But Louise, you come from a highly authoritarian family background where you're really good at putting effort into things. You have a highly structured life. The challenge for you is that nothing you do is ever good enough. Your struggle is with perfectionism and expectations. Um, where, right. Whereas the other, but if you come from that paradigm, it's difficult to understand why other people find it so difficult to put effort into something. You find putting effort into something very easy, but it's never good enough. Um, there's a large sector of, the, of patients that are raised in a permissive family where there's no structural rules. They have all the incentive to do things, but somewhere between the incentive to do something and sustainable effort, they go sideways. And they go sideways to an instant gratification mechanism. You know what? I had a really rough day. I'm going to go for a walk. But just before I go, one little shot of whiskey. And half an hour later, the bottle's empty. You passed it on the couch. It never happens. Um, you know, when you go for your walk and you come back and you've done 8,000 steps, instead of feeling wonderful that you've done 8,000 steps, your Fitbit is screaming at you to tell you how pathetic you are that you didn't do 10,000 steps. So... We can't manage the expectations of those two populations are completely different and they cannot be managed in the same box. And, and that understanding who is in front of you as a patient 
the very first thing I do is just in the back of my mind is to identify what this person is capable of and what level of structure they have. And that's an important consideration in helping people. Mm. So what I'm hearing is um, there's there's two things about this. Is obviously understanding obviously the patient the patient's lived experience and obviously you know there's this spectrum of perfectionism and permissiveness. But that sort of speaks to their their health beliefs, their health literacies. But I think what what we're missing, or not what what we're missing, what what is your lived experience also informs that as well you know as a formerly obese you know man you you understand that so really I think you know you should be proud of the fact that you can walk in the shoes of of you know your patients having had that lived experience and that's obviously a rare insight and that's similar to um, we've we've interviewed a number of um, other health professionals that have had this lived experience of having had various, you know, um, conditions, you know, morbid obesity, and now in their, in you know, in their enlightenment, you know, that they're giving back. Is that something that you can share, or you do share with your with your patients as well? That lived experience. Absolutely, because one of the the key things about addiction is your body may not be fat, you may not be drunk, but you're always an alcoholic. You're always a fat person. This is always fat. In other words, this the vulnerability to addictive behavior because of our life pattern, how we approach life is always there. And um, But there are pragmatic aspects to my life that I've recognized and changed that I can share with my patients or use in an analogical fashion for them to understand concepts. But I really have to be able to meet someone where they are, not where I would have them. And uh, from a health paradigm, as I said, we're all going to die. So... This is not about you have to do something, you must do something. Louise, you live in a must world. You live in a have to world. And that's your liability, but also your asset. Um, It really is. Addiction management is about empowering people to get to do it, to to make choices. If you are deprived of something, there's no way you're going to sustain deprivation. If you feel deprived, I'm not allowed to eat this. Well, I'm going to deprive myself of this for three months to lose 50 pounds. But it's an unsustainable paradigm. But if you're empowered to not eat something, you know, the vegan that is apologetic about eating steak is very shortly going to eat that steak. Oh, no, 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 I'm not allowed to eat a steak. I'd love to, but I can't. I'm vegan. That's not the way they approach it. They're arrogant to the point of annoyance that that's disgusting. How dare you kill Bambi? And um, that arrogance, that empowerment protects them from eating that meat. And the same is true with the ex-smoker or uh, in my own life or the life of my patients. When you develop disdain for the thing that you used to love to eat and have to make excuses about, that's disgusting. How can anyone drink that Coke? You're far less likely to do so. And and really what, what addiction management is about is about empowerment and enrichment of your life rather than deprivation. Deprivation is a dietary module and that's why 98% of diets fail. Hmm. Which was really interesting when I understood, I went when I went to a Geneva, and here was the man of, you know, 
to me that represented it, and that was Calvin, you know, and Calvin had that deprivation. He was the man that said, you must go without, and that's the sort of stuff that, you know, these Calvinistic notions of deprivation, like, you know, we I can't eat that. I'll have to eat celery for, you know, days on end. And when I sort of understood about what Calvin was saying and how pervasive that Calvinistic notions have gone into you know, particularly, uh, you know, that diet culture, it was like I was shaking my fist in, um, at the statues all around, all around Geneva. But it, it's so true that when we deprive ourselves, it's a completely when we do that flip to empower. And our good friend Terry Lance, um, when we were talking about fasting, and she was saying, I'm not depriving myself when I'm fasting. I'm actually giving my, my pancreas a break. And immediately... It has that um, shift, you know, I've empowered myself to make the choice to give my pancreas a break by not eating food. It's refreshing and enlightening and empowering. Well, you know, one of the things to understand is that we use carbohydrates for a highly positive purpose. In fact, the, the, the value of eating carbohydrates and snacks is so powerful that we're willing to disregard all the obvious information that it's really bad. Same thing with smoking. So the what we have to be able to help our patients to do is to understand that there's a huge positive benefit to eating carbohydrates with a liability on the back end. It, it, I equate it a lot to, to marriage. You fall in love with someone and you marry them because you truly love them. But then for most marriages, yes, more than 50% of marriages, slowly over time, the liability outweighs the love and the benefit. You still love them. You still love that person at a core because that doesn't go away. But the liability factor grows up to a point where you now realize that this relationship is kind of at an end and I need to move away. And sometimes we're trapped in that relationship because of the fondness for the love, despite the obvious liability. But eventually we reach a point where we sit down and we say, okay, I need to go, we need to separate, we need to get divorced. But you don't divorce somebody because you don't love them. You divorce them because the liability is greater than that desire. And that's exactly the same process that we like to use for our patients is that don't tell someone that they don't love carbohydrates. I still love them. I still have a fondness for them. But I also recognize that I have a greater fondness for myself and my current life. And the little things that I'm now able to do that carbohydrates prevented me from doing. And slowly mm -hmm. over time, that love does fade and it, be, it dissipates. But you can only break a habit if, and this is a core factor for addiction management over diet, you can only break a habit that you're not doing. And you can only create a habit if you do it regularly. And to be on a diet, even a carbohydrate restricted diet, where you give someone an amount that they can eat up to, or you give them an allowance, you're preserving the relationship that they've lost control over. That's like asking an alcoholic to only drink one light beer a day. It is ludicrous if you put it in terms of addiction. So the, the, the mantra is to progressively work toward carbohydrate abstinence. But there's a dichotomy there because what happens to vegetables? All vegetables are by definition made of carbohydrate. But vegetables are free in our program of any kind, even carrots and peas. Oh, they contain so many carbohydrates. But I've never met a fat person who had a rough day and rushed to the fridge and pigged out on Brussels sprouts. The, the 
carbohydrate incentive is just not there. So we've got to manage this from the capability of what patients are able to do and what their triggers are. But I think understanding the dynamics of relationships is so important in addiction management. Um, to tell someone to abandon something they absolutely love and they're not ready to do it yet is always going to lead to failure. Hmm. But slowly over time, if they start to recover and develop a better life, then that incentive goes away. And, and that sometimes is what we need. You know, it's a little bit like the spouse who is in love with their partner, but there's a lot of liability and they find they cheat. They find they have an affair. Okay. And the affair shows them it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It shows them that there is something else beyond this relationship. And the way that I kind of pitch that is as you start to lose a bit of weight, it's almost like you have an affair with a clothing size that's a little bit smaller. You're able now to cross your legs. You're able to go for a walk easily. You're sleeping better because you don't need your CPAP. And that's almost an illicit benefit you're cheating on your spouse, which is carbohydrates. But as you start to love that new life, you realize that these carbohydrates that gave me so much pleasure were a trap away from being able to go for that walk, to be able to cross my legs. And you lose that love of the carbohydrates because of what you're gaining. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. So what I, what I like to have my patients do is every day, recognize multiple times a day the pride that they have in the little things that they're now able and willing to do that they weren't able to do before. Because ultimately, you can't get rid of carbohydrates without replacing them with something else. And the replacement, in my opinion, should give you greater pleasure without liability than the consumption of carbohydrates, which give you great pleasure with huge liability. Because the replacement is critically important. If you're not in the driver's seat of replacement, your brain is going to take that role. If you're in the passenger seat of the replacement of carbohydrates, so a lot of people who quit smoking find some other instant gratification drug. They may quite, get depressed. And quite often sugar. And often, right. And so often they gain some weight. And that is uh, between 10 and 20% of people who quit smoking successfully gain a significant amount of weight, not just a few pounds, but a significant amount of weight. Now, it's not everybody, but at the same time, a drug transfer is necessary. And the ideal transfer is from a substance to an effort-based action. Hmm. So if you go from carbohydrates to the gym or you go from carbohydrates to rediscovering playing the guitar that you did when you were younger, or going to church, or whatever that may be, that's where you get your happiness and your pleasure from. And your that becomes your new fortress of solitude yeah. to replace the fridge and the pantry as your place of worship. So it's moving away from instant gratification to a longer term, might take more effort gratification. Correct. And then the other, the other piece, you see Louise and myself doing this uh, all the time, is to have something instantly at hand that, right, that dissipates, um, I, I call it my MCM, a mind-cleansing moment, because when there's emotional tension, you want immediate subconscious relief. If you have to think about it, or if there's nothing in your environment, you're going to go back to the old pattern, which is a snack. And a snack is always, always, always 
an emotional event. Whereas if you formulate that relationship, and I call it a bridge, the difference between a snack and, and what I'm drinking now, this used to be Coke, now it's coffee. And is the coffee perfect? No, but it's perfect for me because it doesn't contain calories. It does what I wanted to do in terms of giving me that degree of tranquility. And it's now a subconscious relationship that I'm really proud of. So when something comes at me that creates emotional tension and I need relief, instead of me going for a Coke or some M&Ms, where's my coffee? Instead of having a cigarette, where's my gum? And the gum is an adequate surrogate for that cigarette for the smoker. And eventually it's not, I need my cigarette, where's my gum? It just becomes, where's my gum? And the same thing happens here. So part of addiction management that's different than diet is anything you ever deprive yourself of has to be replaced. And the failure to replace is going to lead to relapse. So you said, um, and, and I love this saying, and I often say it, and I think Louise uses it as well, is snacking is always an emotional event. So we know that we should be eating one to two meals a day, uh, lunch and supper, breakfast and supper, whatever it is, that's what we should be doing. But I find myself about four o'clock in the afternoon feeling like I need one square one square of 85% chocolate. That's all I need. Some days I do it, some days I don't. I was thinking about that today and I was thinking, no, it's just a habit, but it isn't a habit. It's now become, I don't, well, it is a habit, definitely a habit. But what, I don't know what the emotional event is other than I have a cup of tea and a piece of chocolate. Why do I need the piece of chocolate? That's it's what a, I don't it's understand. It's changing the pace of your day. Anytime the pace of your day changes, you require emotional resolution. So first thing in the morning, if you wake up and you've created some time to invest in yourself, you go for a walk, you have some meditative time, you watch the sun come up, you make yourself a cup of coffee. If there's a slow paced, I call it putting emotional money in the bank. So you do things for, for emotional fulfillment that makes you feel good at the start of the day. And part of that start of the day is looking at what the demands of the day are so that you can plan ahead and there's less chaos. If you wake up 10 minutes late because you hit the snooze button, now you're having to slice away bits of self-care. So instead of having that cup of coffee, you grab the Atkins bar and you run off out the door and you do your makeup while you're driving in the car. It, that creates emotional tension that starts your day off chaotically. Then you're working through the day and as long as you're busy, you have little moments, you have little mind cleansing moments throughout the day. Everybody does. That's the way the brain works. But at the end of the day, at four o'clock, when your day begins to end, as part of your unwinding, as part of exhaling that emotional tension, your mechanism of doing that is to have that one tiny little um, low carbohydrate sip of beer. Oh, no, you said it was a chocolate. It's not beer. <laughs> but the point is, it has nothing to do with the eating, it has to do the, with the recognizing the event of a need to have that break. One of the things that I switched over is I trained my dog, who's now five years old, to sit with his leash in his mouth as I walk through the door in the, in the evening. So the first thing I do before I walk into my house, and that's that transition from uh, work to home, is take my dog for a walk. That has become my little slab of dark chocolate or my little block of... So in other words... That piece of chocolate represents a need for emotional relaxation, not the need for something sugary or for mm. something. But, but your correlation with that is 
that is the trigger for your relaxation. My walk has become that. I had to consciously force myself to do that. And there are days when I walk my dog and there are days when my, walk dog, my dog walks me. But, it, but that has become my piece of dark chocolate. Does, does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And the same, the worst time for most people is between dinner and bedtime. Because that is where we're in our private space, where we're really relaxing to get ready for bed. And there's a physiologic response. We're turning, we're going from a serotonin-based uh, um, mental state, dopamine to, and serotonin-based mental state, which is an active form. And serotonin then gets converted to something that all of you have heard of called melatonin. Okay. And melatonin is your sleep medication. And if you allow yourself to relax in the evening, then you create enough melatonin that you get to sleep easily. But if you're hyperactive and often watching the news on TV aggravates you. So now you're keeping that serotonin alive. You're even having a cortisol response at a time when your cortisol levels should be as low as they can be. So now you need to eat something to create that response because that high that whether it's smoking a cigarette, having a glass of wine or eating a slab of chocolate or a tub of ice cream, those are all artificial forms of creating that same relaxation so that you can go to bed. Hmm. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? So a large It does. Of, I don't have that anymore, but it does. Correct. I, you know, but I you think still, I used to have it. Right. But you hmm. you still have the need. You've just surrogated it for something else. I bet you, if you look at your life, there's something you do in the evening before you go to sleep that relaxes you more effectively than a consumable calorie. But we all that need is present. It's how you handle it, the transformation that's important. Yeah. I've been doing the, um, the coloring in, and I have been finding that the sort of the meditativeness of just that sort of coloring in of those, you know, the, the pictures and that sort of stuff. I mean, it's quite stressful for me because, you know, I'm the perfectionistic person, um, high need achiever with the perfectionistic tendencies. I have to choose the right color. So it is quite stressful. So that I do have a cortisol response. Right. But. Overall, it's it's quite meditative, and and actually, um, I've noticed the nights when I haven't actually had maybe you know we were watching a TV show like a, a Netflix, and then that's forty five minutes. So yeah, forty five minutes of that meditative um, coloring in is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Right. So you know, and this is this takes it to another level. I mean, this is not something you can discuss in even in an hour. But the next level is this: is that if you look at emotional tension. It is a response to issues that come at us. There are issues that come at us all day, every day. You get a bad text. You get the stress from some work thing that you have to do. There are issues, pragmatic issues, that we have to deal with all all the time, and they create emotional stress. Oh, I'm stressful at work. I'm really busy. They create anxiety. They create emotional tension. And what instant gratification methodology does, uh, you drink a glass of wine, you have a slab of chocolate, It gives you instant emotional relief, but it disconnects you because it's a short period of relaxation, of relief. It disconnects you from identifying and processing and dealing with the issue that triggered the emotional tension. Mm. When you go for a walk, when you're sitting there coloring, the coloring is just opening the door of relaxation. So the world dissolves around you while you're coloring. It becomes a mundane task, but it allows you to escape into this tranquility zone, this almost subconscious 
meditative zone where your subconscious reveals to you some of the issues that you've hoarded in your subconscious. And as those pop up and you process them and let them go, come to terms with them, and if you have periods throughout the day where you can do that, you're becoming a more effective human being at dealing with the issues that are causing the emotional tension. And if you've dealt with an issue in your awake state before you go to sleep, you're going to have mm. a much more restful sleep. Absolutely. Sometimes we get to sleep and then after two or three hours of early rest, we wake up and our head is spinning because our subconscious, when you sleep, that conscious brain goes away and the subconscious, right, that subconscious wakes you up and you're spinning about issues and you go down these rabbit holes of awful emotional tension. And um, so we have poor sleep and then the poor sleep, now I have to sleep longer in the morning. So I hit the snooze button and now I've got chaos in the morning and it becomes this cyclical uh, problem of not dealing with issues and then leaning more and more and more on instant gratification substances to manage the emotional tension, but to disconnect from the issues. I call that psychological hoarding and all addicts take issues and shove it in their subconscious. I'll deal with you later, but later it never comes. And, and one of the most prevalent things for people like you, Louise, is, um, and I, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it's procrastination. Because procrastination is a, an instant relief with pain on the back end. And we take those things that we know we have to do that are going to cause us greater harm because now we have compressed time to do them in and we don't deal with them. Whereas the Nike solution, which is just do it, gives you that tremendous relief. But that's part of authoritarianism. Mm, well, Louise, you've been found out. I know, but this was the thing. Like I've also I've also done my PhD and I really did struggle, obviously being the high need achiever with perfectionistic tendencies, um, was procrastination and I would not hand up my, my draft to my 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 you know my thesis supervisor because it wasn't perfect. So I'm just an open book. So you've just you've just read me. Um, yeah, but you know, it's, true. But it's true. It's true, and that's where a lot of my food issues dealt with. You know, the emotional um, tension was obviously. Um, you know, I was a single parent with a special needs child doing their doctoral. You know, my marriage was breaking down. You know, before that, and it was comfort in food, the self soothing, and you know, Doctor Phil said, "Louise, you're having a party in your mouth." So. That's where I know it led to me being nearly, well, I nearly got to 300 pounds. But, um, yeah, and that took a lot of therapy unpacking, um, as you said, a lot of those, unten- you know, a lot of the hoarding that I did, suppression, um, a lot of the self-soothing through food, that dysfunctional relationship with food. Um, yeah. But that, you said that's, it's a necessary relationship at the time to give you emotional buoyancy because you can't get it from the life that you lead and and you know whether we're dealing with the permissive folks or the authoritarian folks the the permissive folks need if they're going to be successful at this and it's not about losing weight or limiting or getting rid of carbohydrates for a short period of time The, the 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 greatest challenge with diets is one word sustainability because they're deprivational they're unsustainable and um understanding who you are And for the permissives, creating external structure 
helps them to sustain a behavior until it becomes a part of the fabric of who they are. So if I've got to go for a walk as a permissive person every day, it's just not going to happen. But if I'm meeting my trainer at five o'clock, I'm going to show up. And the trainer is going to help me to show up. And if I show up on a regular basis, I learn to have that pride in and that positive feeling, I'm going to show up on a regular basis. The authoritarian person wants to return their locus of validation to themselves. An authoritarian person is incapable of giving themselves unconditional approval. And learning to let go of outcome metrics for approval and approving of the effort rather than the outcome is the more important thing. And, you know, that's that's the challenge. So when we self-approve, mm. we find emotional relief in what we do. When we are beholden to somebody else for their approval, it can never, ever be unconditional. So, you know, those are the, those are the things we help. You notice we haven't talked about carbohydrates at all. We haven't really talked about, that's been the central theme, but we haven't talked about weight loss or obesity or diabetes. Those are physiologic diseases that, are, that can be fixed very, very easily in the short term. But unless you change the psychologic methodology, it's always going to come back. And that's why diets fail. Diets fail all the time because people don't find the adequate replacement. Hmm. I, I, I totally agree. And, um, I mean, I ended up having a, a, a sleeve gastrectomy in 2012, but that was after three years of therapy and a further two years. So I put in five years of therapy to unpack what, you know, you said the physiology, um, well, sorry, the psychology around the physiology. So what was obviously all the triggers leading to obviously um, my dysfunctional relationship with food or disordered, you know, eating. And then, you know, the fact that having this tool, you know, the tool for success. And, you know, I really like the way that, you know, you are advocating that obviously weight loss surgery is a tool. And that is another whole separate conversation about the stigma. And as you said, the failure of weight loss surgery is because it's not, um, you know, the be all and end all. It's an adjunct to um, the psychology. And that really resonates with my lived experience of how much work I had done pre and post operatively and continue to do to to evaluate and you know reflect on my relationship with food and even just being here as I said in um, in Bangkok um, you know things change you know huge stresses huge right. you know but it's not, see, it's not about stress about how you manage them it's what tools you have in your mm. toolkit to right. everyone blame stress it's everybody has stress. What mechanisms do you have to step back from the stress, take care of yourself, and then handle the issue? Absolutely. Um, the stress makes you feel a certain way. And if you recognize how you feel, you can then say, okay, I feel this way. I'm going to go and listen to music. I'm going to have a moment of prayer. I'm going to go for a walk. There are different effort-based things that you can target different feelings. But in order to know that, you need to know the feeling. When you stand in front of the fridge looking for a can of Coke, you have no clue about how, why you feel this way. All you know in an almost obsessive compulsive way is right now I need chocolate relief. Sooth. Mm -hmm. Rob, we're very aware of your time. Time. So thank you. Yeah. But we, 
I don't know if you'd be happy to come back. We'd still love to talk about public health. We'd love to talk about bariatric surgery. Would you be willing to come back and join us? I'd, I'd love to do that. I, you know, this is an ongoing conversation and this is an aspect that most people don't consider. There's tons of information on the physiology of carbohydrates and what it does to your body, diabetes, obesity. And of course, that's important to discuss. But these are the elements that most people don't even comprehend. And, and this is the wheelhouse that I think we're all in. Um, and, and I think this speaks to people who have perhaps tried a ketogenic approach and struggled with it. And it's not because keto doesn't work. It's because the methodology is the problem. It's still a diet rather than what we've discussed today. So I'd be happy to do that. And um, advancing people's insight into themselves. Why do I do this? Not what am I doing? You can change what you eat very quickly. But what's the real struggle is why am I doing this right now? Yeah. And that's what we often don't connect with. Yeah. We we do actually, you know, Jackie's why was because she wants to live to 107. So um, she doesn't want to live to 100. You capped her at 100, but right. she's going to live to 107. I'm going for 107. But, okay. <laughs> but the effort-based system, I think, um, was really interesting when we, we were changing that, was connecting with community. And I, I know that, you know, when we go to those low-carb conferences, we have this effort, the effort of the social connection with these like-minded people, you know, that we all come together. And as you, you know, highlighted COVID, the disconnection that has come for that, and we have to find these adjunctive ways like Zoom, um, you know, to right. really feel the connection the reason why we're able to have this level of conversation is because we've all accepted that carbohydrates are the problem so it becomes easy to go to the next level because we don't still have to argue with people about the benefits of a carbohydrate uh, of a low carbohydrate eating way way of eating so I, I think that um when you're in that community there are certain fundamental ground rules that are already accepted. And, and as I, as this has evolved, you know, early on when we went to the low-carb meetings, it was about obesity and about weight loss. And now that is a very minor fraction of what we even discuss at those meetings. Now we're into the cholesterols and we're into the cardiovascular disease and we're into hypertension and we're into the psychology. And there, there's so many other aspects, the diabetes part. You know, 60% of my patients... Um, are coming to see me because of diabetes, not because of obesity. They may have excess weight, but it's the diabetes that's the factor. And, um, you know, so those are all the aspects that we work on, or they've had surgery and they're struggling with, with the surgery, they've gained their weight back or, or something has happened in that regard. So the breadth of this discussion opens up when you accept certain things as fundamentals. And the three of us um, have bought into the fact that carbs are a problem. Now the question is why? And why? the more the, the, these are higher levels in in this approach, and that's what we can talk about at, at length. Um, but I think the the fundamental part is the solution is introspective. Hmm. Yeah, you've got to do the work. You've got to put the effort in. Yeah, I think that's um, Dr. Rob's top tip. Well, let, let's hear his top tips. But before we do, could you just Tell people where they can find you online. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I have a YouTube channel that discusses all of this, and I've been very open about it. It's um, Carb Addiction Doc on YouTube. And on Instagram and Facebook, I post little... I, so a large part of addiction management for me is community and connection. And if, you know, the alcoholics use a sponsor that they talk to a lot on a daily basis, 
between meetings. And my, my Instagram and my uh, Facebook posts, I post every day. And it really is that little touch. It's almost like reading a verse of the Bible um, where it gets you thinking, it gets you connected with what you're trying to do each day because complacency happens over time if you're not engaged. So I've got a YouTube channel and a Facebook channel, Carb Addiction Doc as well. Um, and uh, if you follow me or if you subscribe to that, it's all free, but it keeps you in the game. It gets My favorite saying is that whether you agree or disagree with me, if I've made you think about yourself, I've done my job. Mm, definitely. And then uh, if, someone, <laughs> right, if someone wants a consult um, by WhatsApp anywhere in the world or by text or um, calling in the US or Canada, it's um, 561-517-0642. And that's called our bat phone and it collects uh, all the messages and then somebody responds to that each day. Excellent. And if, if, and website? Do you have a website? I do. It's called obesityunderstood.com. Uh, it's a dormant website. It's out there, but uh, websites are part of the last century, <laughs> in my opinion. I think it's more the instant uh, social media. So I've got a lot of content on there, but it's not updated content. Uh, certainly okay. there's an entry point there, but I, I prefer the, the social media stuff. I think we've just gone on TikTok as well now, which is really upbeat for an old man. Uh, <laughs> But that's, that's, that's where people can find me. It really is about getting the message out. I don't sell anything. I don't pitch anything. It's information. And um, my business is helping individual people as a physician, as a doctor. So uh, uh, my focus is on one-on-one -on -one medical practice um, help as a doctor. So that doctor-patient mm. relationship is the core of what I do. Yeah, excellent. So can you... I know you've you've given us loads of tips throughout the hour or hour and a bit. Um, could you distill that into your three top tips? I, I think the most important thing is to have ownership. It's everything starts with contemplation and ownership. So before you change anything, look at your world through the lens of your dependency on sugar and starch and snacks as a form of emotion management. And once you see the size, the enormity of the elephant, that's what I call it, you can then decide whether you agree or disagree that you have an out-of-control relationship with a drug called sugar and starch. Not food, but sugar and starch. And then the decision has to be, and this is what, what challenges people, we're all going to die. If you decide, yes, I, I have this dependency, but I don't care. I love that relationship, and I don't care if it kills me. There's no incentive to change. But the second part is once you have ownership of that and a desire to change, then eat the elephant in small pieces. Because if you try to go keto tomorrow, you're going to choke on the elephant. This is a lifetime. And what you do in a week is irrelevant if you can't sustain it beyond the sixth week. So uh, the way we work with our patients is to make small definitive changes and to be the tortoise, not the rabbit in this approach. And you're continuously moving forward and making little changes. There's always, always, always more work to be done. So don't think of this as a diet. Think of it as, as a change in habit patterns, where you're breaking certain habits and creating new ones. And if you approach it from that perspective, the weight loss and the resolution of diabetes happens vicariously rather than as a primary objective. Because if the scale, if you bust your butt and the scale doesn't go down, 
you abandon the process. Mm. If you eat a tub of ice cream and the scale goes down, ha ha ha, look, I can do this. So the having outcome metrics as your measurement of success, as a goal, is a very, very poor way to sustain a behavior. Outcome metrics should be milestones along a journey rather than primary objectives. And that's a difficult thing for obese people to understand. Definitely. So I think that's two tips. That's three. I've got three. I've got three. I've got three. I've got three. That's fine. Um, Excellent. And it is an absolute, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for your time. So insightful. So many takeaways. And we would love to have you back. And, you know, for for me, what's important is spreading this worldwide. And um, because every community is, everywhere in the world is ravaged by carbohydrate excess. And having people understand this worldwide in their own communities from their own unique perspectives. That's important. So thank you very much for what you guys are doing. No, thank you. Thank you for your advocacy and your um, empowering. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Hi, my name is Louise and I enjoy snacking as an emotional event. Hi, my name's Jackie and I definitely snack as an emotional event. No, I think mine is habit rather I uh, see that this is the crux of it, isn't it? And we mentioned it in the podcast. Is it is it habit? Is it an emotional event? For me it's maybe it is an emotional event. So my snacking would tend to come mid afternoon with a cup of tea if I have anything. And you know, maybe it's that going back to Dave Wolf's triangle, maybe it's that romance section of, you know, with my mum feeling, I don't know, safe, maybe, I don't know, just typical habit afternoon. I don't do it every day, but when I do, my snacking tends to be at four o'clock in the afternoon. But Rob would say, well, what's the emotional tension there, Jackie? Well, you know, what is it that you're soothing? And I think that that's a really... I just love the fact that he was able to conceptualise the fact that it's the, the physiology and the psychology and obviously one of the tools, and I've always said that about myself, my weight loss surgery was the physiological intervention that I needed. But as listeners will know, I put three years of psychology in pre-surgery and I followed it up with the two years after that, you know, in terms of therapy. So I certainly did a lot of emotional work in in resolving those tensions that led me to that disorderly eating. So I understand that there's a lot of habits that you're reflecting on, you know, that you're connecting with. That's the food values, you know, that that's connection with your mum, you know, those little things that, um, you know, make you feel warm and safe, you know, going back to your childhood. Yeah. But also he spoke about transition. So for me, that four o'clock in the afternoon is that transition from the end of the work day into a now winding down type time um, and relaxing um, period in the afternoon. So maybe it's just the transition part that he was speaking about. But Well, like he said, you need to find alternatives to that you know that there needs to be a replacement you can't just stop doing it you need to replace it with 
something else. And, you know, where he was saying about his, you know, his dog bringing him the lead and all that sort of stuff. And since we recorded this episode, I have been trying to be more purposeful about, you know, carving out that half an hour of, of yoga time. You know, to think that I can't find 30 minutes, you know, that's just that's just crazy. But it is competing demands, you know. There's so many competing demands. But again, that's me being structured, you know, that's me. I need to use some of my tools and colour code it, <laughs> my exercise highlighter colour um, in my day, you know, that if it's not going to be in my diary, then it's I need to make it structured and use the things that I do well in time boxing and time box that exercise in and make it a non-negotiable. Yeah. But I did feel very vulnerable. He did read me like a book, you know. I did feel that, um, yeah, he certainly picked me um, for being, you know, one of those uptight, control-freaky people. But um, And that's obviously a testament to his expertise and, you know, yeah, it would have been a, maybe it would have been different if I had gone to him as a, as my you know as my surgeon. So yeah, um, but prospectively. you know back then he probably didn't know what he knows now, so he mm, he probably true. would have been the same as your surgeon. Mm. But you know I would yeah. have loved to have got on to we just we could have t- I felt we could have talked for hours with him because he he was just so fascinating. Um, and we didn't get on to, you know, some of the things we spoke about before we went on air, we didn't get to any of that. And it's just so much. And we, he did say he would come back and we hopefully will get him back um, mm. in the new year. Yeah. It just is one of those, you know, insightful. And we're just so lucky to have him in, in the community. And I think that that's part of his role, you know, where we can hear his passion and commitment to, to educate, empower, advocate, and build you know the community and build the personal skills for the listeners and you know we're very very grateful for his time where can we get the show notes for this episode jackie so show notes are at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero six two thanks jackie It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all.
disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.